Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Logic and Larry podcast. I'm happy to be here with you on another Friday night at the same time. Usual suspects in the comments section, usual suspects as listeners from across the country. My name is Larry Illuciato Crane. I'm happy to have you. Everything I say on this podcast is my opinion. It does not reflect the opinion of any other entity. It does not reflect the opinion of me in a professional capacity in any way. It's all just my personal opinions and theories and reiteration of the facts, coupled with logic from me as an individual citizen. Now, Rick called out, as was the right answer. Rick called out that the song, Donald Byrd, Women of the World, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, was a dedication to Kamala Harris. She is the first ever woman vice president, the first woman to ever be vice president, president, anything of that nature at all in U.S. history. And so I thought it fitting to play that song to honor her in commemoration of that historical achievement. Now, today, today is going to take on just a little bit different of a vibe, guys. Because today is the, the first podcast of a whole new administration. And what does that mean? What well, it means... Logic and Larry, we've been spending so much time talking about COVID, as we still will as it progresses and as we try to defeat it. We've been so much spending so much time talking about President Trump, former President Trump, and, and the issues with that administration. And we've been spending so much time on all of these things. But now... All of a sudden, we have real news to report on, and we have just back-to-business policy arguments and policy debates and discussions to talk about. And so from this point forth, a lot of what we will be doing is going to be discussing the actual news, actual policies, things happening. And you know me, I'm a centrist. I'm in the middle. I'm a logical guy. We're going to be criticizing, analyzing, dissecting every different aspect of the news politically and otherwise that is coming out of our government and first and foremost as I was instructed to do by my political science teachers years ago we're gonna be informing people getting the facts out there letting people make their own decisions based on the unbiased unadulterated pure facts and then I'll give my little perspective on them from a completely objective perspective that is not partisan, believe it or not. You got uh, Paisan in here saying, let's go Rangers. Well, the Rangers didn't do too good a couple days ago against the New Jersey Devils, where I'm looking at the rock right now. I can see the Empire State Building in the distance. I guess MSG is somewhere around there, 34th, 33rd, huh? Well, uh, good for the Rangers. They're a good team, but they didn't, they didn't come up too great against the Devils, so... You know, the devil's also the Islanders, though, so it is what it is. I'm not going to digress on hockey. I wish I could. Look, let's talk about, first and foremost, the inauguration. That's where we are these days, right? The inauguration was Wednesday. And look, uh, 
I'm not bashful. I'm not a bashful guy. And I did post a little story, a little uh, demarcation of the moment, as you might say. And uh, I was a little emotional. I have, I have to be honest, right? I, I, as a kid, I was somewhat emotional when President Obama took the oath and when President Obama uh, became president. But for some reason, yes, the other day, Wednesday, I don't know what it was. To be dead-ass honest, for some reason, when Kamala was taking the oath and then when she stepped up to the the grave and she was doing the ceremony with Biden and, you know, she had the outfit on, the heels on, something about that moment just hit me on a deep, deep, deep level. And I I got emotional about it. Because this is the first woman vice president. First woman vice president. But not only the first woman to break that barrier, but the second African-American, and shout-outs to my West Indians... Because Jamaican, and we all know that's a that's a class of its own. That's a people of its own, and you know Stefan knows that. You know my girl Janelle knows that. I mean that's that's nothing to play with. That's a whole whole group of people on its own. And South Asian, Indian American. So you have Indian American, African American, West Indian woman taking the oath of office and becoming a vice president and then seeing her husband who's Jewish and by the way from New Jersey so I hear Jewish with her and congratulating her by her side instead of vice versa it just represents so much progress that I got emotional I did I got emotional And Sean, good point. Only second, Biden's only the second Catholic president in history. And by the way, the second Irish Catholic president in history. And you know my people. I hope you do. You listen to Logic and Larry, you should know my people to an extent, right? Irish, Catholic. One day we'll get an Italian over there, you know, maybe a little Hungarian guy, you know, whatever. We'll see. But... To see the second Irishman, second Catholic, that's important to me, too. Because you might think, yeah, yeah, I'm a white guy, and I am. I'm a white guy. I look white. I'm white. But my culture, culturally, Catholic, Irish, Italian, that's not necessarily that represented in in the highest office in the land as president. It's only the second one. So Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden... And I, because I've reiterated many times over on this show even that I think that women face sometimes even a greater barrier to ascending the political hierarchy because we've been so conditioned to some extent to at least somewhat accept African-American men because of our, you know, idols in the films and in, in leadership and in, in, in athletics and things of that nature culturally have been... 
somewhat groomed to somewhat understand and accept that the, the women thing, especially an African American woman, is something that this society has been so resistant and reluctant to. And you still see these jerks out there still trying to pull these old tropes and you can tell it's it reeks of racism when they try to criticize her but that's by and large thrown into the margins and in most people that i've seen are very excited and very proud and it's it's a great moment for this country and and here's why if you truly believe in america right and you truly truly believe in progress and what the promise of a more perfect union is then this is symbolic of the fact that that promise and that uh, that actual aim can come to fruition because if you look around the country and especially if you're in the New Jersey New York area even if you were in the Houston area other areas like that Detroit Minneapolis I mean you would know that Indian Americans and and especially Indian American women Indian American women are a a force in this country they are at the forefront of educational systems they are at the forefront of being educated they are at the forefront of a lot of things and it's about time, and not even just about time, but it, it's ripe, right? It's the time for somebody representative of what you actually see night and day in America. Who is actually the doctors? Who are the lawyers? Who are running things? Who are the professors? Shouldn't the government represent the people? Of course. And so Kamala Harris, this woman of color, this South Asian Indian American, this African American, this West Indian woman who was an attorney, who was a prosecutor, a prosecutor, who's also a socially conscious person, who also understands the injustices in the justice system, as ironic as that sounds, actually, actually, becomes the vice president of the United States. That's just a huge moment. It's just a huge moment, and, and I got emotional about it. And, and I, I am a big fan, and I think that it was just a great moment to see somebody in heels and in that dope-ass outfit, sorry, excuse my language, just being at the forefront of the administration is just something just we've, we've never seen, not only in my lifetime, but in American history. And I thought it was profound, and I thought it was deep. Now, overall, overall, the inauguration ceremony, I thought it really showed something, right? It, it showed that there is this cultural, racial divide by party, unfortunately, in this country. Now, I don't think that that should persist. I don't think that that's necessary, right? I think ideologically, and I bet Mr. Spafford would agree on this, I think ideologically... Ideologically, it doesn't need to be divided by race or by culture or by creed. Ideologically, the belief systems of either party can, can 
transcend racial barriers, but because of this persistence on the mainly right side of trying to double down on and exploit and continue to fuel a racial narrative. And you can't say it's not happening on the left, too, because it is. You, you, you know, this, this cultural divide, this culture war that has become so prominent in our politics that it's almost everything else policy-wise is subservient to the overall culture war and the identity politics aspect. But regardless of why it is, you did see in the inauguration what you saw was this cultural representation. What I mean is when you look at the Democrats and everybody who was in attendance and who they had out in front and who was cheering and who was speaking and who was prominent in the ceremonies, you saw this diversity, right? This undeniable diversity. You saw... These, you know, just every different aspect of the people up there was just diverse. It was this collection of people, and it, it wasn't to the exclusion of white men at all. There were white men there, right? But, but they were a part of this greater framework and this, you know, uh, patchwork of people, this melting pot that truly is America. And it was fully on display, and I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see, and I thought it really drove home the fact that, for right now anyway, this one party truly seems to be more representative of this diversified patchwork of America as opposed to this forced whitewashed side on the other, on the other hand. And, and I don't say that to disparage conservative ideology at all. I actually think I, I say that to say conservative ideology has a place that transcends race and culture too. And we've got to eventually get to a place where policy drives the divide instead of race and culture. But I will say it was on full display yesterday that this was the patchwork of America racially and ethnically. And it did inspire a lot of, you know, uh, good feelings and goodwill for me anyway. I, I quite enjoyed seeing it and I thought it was really profound. Um, so hopefully we can get past that, but for right now, there's this emotional cultural divide. That being said, this was this past week, we celebrated MLK Day, which I think is a, a really, it's a profound holiday, right, in American history. And, and the reason is that this was a person who pushed resistance and conflict to the forefront in, in order he created societal conflict that was his goal right he wasn't somebody who turned the other cheek per se or somebody who just went along with whatever the country was doing he was a, a an agitator and he was an agitator for good and he agitated and did things that would agitate the norms of society in order to influence and to affect change and I think most of us understand that MLK wanted to affect change and that he was an agitator who wanted to affect change. Where I think sometimes we get lost, and this ties into my idea that, that policy can transcend identity and the parties and the country would be better for it is. When we celebrated MLK Day, you had various people who, you know, they posted a quote or they talked about a quote or whatever they did. And that's nice, okay? 
And then you had other people who said, how dare you post an MLK quote when you're against everything MLK stood for? And some of that was valid, right? But then there was this whole other group, right? There's this new group of people, and I, I see this primarily on the left, who every MLK day, whenever MLK comes up, the way they say it is, well, you're not allowed to celebrate MLK Day if you're a conservative. You're not allowed to celebrate MLK Day if you've ever said anything against what, what I think. And then second, if you're going to celebrate MLK, well, you have to celebrate MLK as if he were Malcolm X. right? You can't celebrate MLK Day and revere or make note of his nonviolent tactical strategy you have to now buy into this new narrative that he was actually really militant and militant philosophy is the way forward in the same struggle and that's how people are framing it now there's all these articles that try to try to futilely push MLK into this militant camp because that suits their 21st century agenda but that's simply not what he believed. And, he, and, and here's the thing. And this does tie back into my party transcendent, you know, narrative. So I don't think I'm getting off topic. The fact is, MLK was an agitator. So anybody who acts like MLK, one, was liked by the majority of white Americans. He was not. White Americans didn't come around to the idea until years, decades later. So to pretend like he was some revered figure in his time is a misnomer. So people who point, you know, make light of that, I understand that, right? But he, he staunchly believed, not necessarily because he emotionally truly believed this, but, but tactically, tactically, MLK truly believed tactically that nonviolent resistance and nonviolent agitation was the best path forward to actually attain the goals that he stated he wanted to achieve. And he was right, right? Various studies have shown that nonviolent resistance, even if it agitates, even if it knocks the norms off of their seats, even if it makes certain white people uncomfortable as it should, it still has a wider breadth and a wider reach and is more likely to result in success if it's nonviolent. This was in sharp contrast to those who advocated for violence. Now, I'm not saying that one or the other is necessarily correct, although you know I advocate for nonviolence and I don't support destruction in any way. But I just find it interesting, this reframing of MLK now, because everything literally in our public dialogue now has to be this binary thing that falls on one side or the other. The fact is MLK was an agitator who was not well loved by the majority of white Americans who did not want to change the status quo, yet he still believed in nonviolence as a tactical strategy. He doesn't have to be all or nothing. And Rick, you're right. Jesus and Gandhi did prove that, and he was a disciple of both. So... I just found it interesting as we delve into this new era of politics and, and, and things are so concentrated and so based on race and culture and ethnicity, it's important to reflect even on that holiday that could serve as a, as a point for unity. And I'm not saying that in saying unity we have to just bury the hatchet, bury everything that we ever said and all of that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, these are things that are somewhat holding us back. We can acknowledge 
that turning the other cheek wasn't necessarily MLK, right? And that agitation is necessary and civil disobedience is sometimes necessary to affect change while still acknowledging that violent destruction was not advocated by the pe- person we're revering. Just saying. Just saying. These are some of the impediments to getting us to where we really want to go and should be trying to go as a, as a country. With that said, with that said, discussing this issue of can we transcend race and ethnicity? Can we transcend race and ethnicity and get to a place where philosophically, ideologically, both parties have some type of reach? If we can, can we get to a place where both parties bring their core philosophies and ideology, ideological stances to the table? And use that as a guiding light, but don't allow it to inhibit any progress or any compromise. Can we get to a place in this country where we do start to transcend this cultural, visceral, emotional contention with each other? In the spirit of that, let's talk about where we're going or where the administration seems to be trying to go. From a practical standpoint. So what we've heard from the Biden administration, and look, I'm going to get into some of the executive orders. I'm going to get through some of the legislative agenda items. We are back to a format. This 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 podcast is going to be a show that deals with reporting the news, discussing the news in a logical and objective fashion amongst each other, and spreading knowledge between each other. So that's where we're going. So I'm excited about it. It's a new, it's a new era. But before we get there, let's talk about what's happening. And, and and I didn't fail to mention one thing about that diversity. Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman, the poet. You know, in an, in an interesting way, right? This is a young woman of color who is brilliant, who was very talented. And I found her poem to be incredibly moving. And, and here's the primary reason why. The primary reason I found her poem to be so moving was that she did what I'm talking about, right? She was able to capture the injustice, the original sin, the problems that have long been associated with our nation and have long plagued us and are still with us today, yet captured in a way that offered hope going forward and offered a bridge forward and a way forward. And to look at that inauguration, look at Kamala Harris, look at Amanda Gorman, look at that diverse array of people on that stage and to not acknowledge that America does have the mechanisms, does have the mechanisms built into its fabric for progress and that we are attaining progress, albeit slower than most would like. To act as if that doesn't exist would be a misnomer. It wouldn't be accurate. So Ms. Nor- Ms. Gorman in an artistic and heartfelt way truly did capture that core philosophy of what I believe in as an American as what I think a lot of us believe in as Americans that we can progress forward while still acknowledging our problems but doesn't mean that the country itself or that everything we're built upon is consistently or you know is futile and i just thought it was brilliant but but moving on right so so we have biden here 
One of the primary things it looks like Biden wants to do is Biden truly wants to move forward in a bipartisan way, right? Biden wants to move forward in a bipartisan way. His He has, you know, um, ambitious legislative agendas. He has ambitious goals. And these are things that he's not shy about. These are things that may not be that palatable to a lot of conservatives. Nonetheless, nonetheless, Biden wants to move forward in a bipartisan way. So we got a little bit of an indication of whether that's going to happen in the last few days. And let's talk about that. So today we heard from Chuck Schumer this morning, the who's soon to be the Senate Majority Leader, albeit with a 50-50 split with Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker. We also heard from Mitch McConnell, who is currently the majority leader, who's soon to be the minority leader of the Senate. And what I heard, anyway, was a, a totally different Mitch McConnell than we have heard for the last several years. We heard a Mitch McConnell that was talking about brass tacks, talking about the mission of the Senate, talking about the way that the country should move forward, talking about core principles. Uh, of the country, and I found it interesting, and, and I think, and I'll get more to this later too, but this whole page-turning aspect of we are entering a new era, or maybe reverting back to an era we've long forgot about, where the people involved in government, and doing the business of government on a daily basis, are speaking in these political government, you know, terms, these cerebral conversations, these parsed-out very in-depth, very nuanced, complex conversations about government as opposed to just this cultural vitriol, vitriol and rhetoric that we've heard as of recent. Anyway, Mitch, Mitch's big thing, and this is, so for those who don't know, and this is part of Logic and Larry just putting information out there, when the Senate's divided 50-50 and the vice president's a tiebreaker, it's, it's kind of a weird hybrid situation where Democrats technically have control of the Senate, but they have to work out a power-sharing agreement because it's technically divided 50-50, but for the vice president's a tiebreaker. So in order to move forward and conduct Senate business, they have to come to some sort of agreement amongst themselves and so there's a lot of negotiation taking place right now about just who runs committees what the rules it's kind of like the senate has rules that they set out at the beginning of every term right and it all kinds of things how do they conduct votes how do they pass legislation who can object to legislation just the whole playing field so to speak they have to figure out what the rules are going to be for the senate for the next two years so because it's 50-50, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are sitting down right now and, and negotiating over who is going to be in charge, how are we going to parse out these rules of the Senate. And one of the most interesting things and one of the big hang-ups currently going on in these negotiations is whether or not the Senate is going to abolish the filibuster rule. Now, I hear so much rhetoric out there right now, and a lot of it's coming from the left regarding the filibuster, right? There's a lot of push from the left to abolish the filibuster in the Senate, to do away with it, to get rid of it. Now, there's two sides to this filibuster argument, right? The, 
here's what it is, first of all. I'm sure most of you know what it is, your Logic and Larry listeners, it is what it is. But if you don't know, or if somebody doesn't know, here's here's what it is, right? In Senate, when the Senate goes to move forward legislation, i.e. pass a bill and make it a law, or send it to the president to sign into law, there's a certain mechanism that's long existed in the United States Senate where... If you don't have 60 votes, which would get you to cloture, and cloture is a term which means 60 senators vote to move the bill forward out of debate and into the actual voting segment where they actually vote by majority to see if it's going to pass or not. There's this mechanism. If you don't get the 60 votes, it might never get to that next stage where it actually gets voted upon. Now, if you remember, for an example, back when Obamacare was was on the chopping block early in Trump's tenure, there was John McCain flew while he had cancer. He flew to Washington. And the first thing he did, some people were angry with him on the left. He voted for cloture. He voted as one of the 60 members to move the legislation forward. Okay? He voted to move it forward so it could be voted on. But then he voted it down. Right? What does this do? It seems arbitrary. It seems archaic. What is this? Right? It seems antiquated. Well, here's what it is. Right? It enables the Senate or or it encourages the Senate to reach bipartisan consensus to some extent before they pass laws forward, right? Because the idea of the United States Senate, and I've always, as a student of history, always been an admirer of the United States Senate, okay? Because the House, you got to remember, the House is comprised of people who are from smaller districts, across the country, right? They're representative of much smaller contingents of people. And so there's more opportunity in the House, but that's how it was intended, right? The House was literally intended. It's two-year terms. This is another topic for another day. But the House was really intended to kind of be, you send your local representative every two years. So this two years, you send the baker. Next two years, you send the teacher. Two years after that, you send the lawyer. Then you send the guy, you know, we didn't work it out that way, but it was supposed to literally be kind of more like a, in England terms, the House of Commons, right? But the Senate was supposed to be this aristocracy, more like the House of Lords in England, right? And so the Senate was supposed to guard against, guard against populism and guard against whimsical legislation. And it's easy to pass whimsical legislation when you, all you need is a simple majority, So if the Senate wanted to pass any kind of democratic initiative and they could get 51 votes, well, then they could just pass that legislation very, very, very easily. But with the filibuster, you're going to need to get a decent amount of Republicans to at least vote to move it forward in order to pass the law, which means that the Senate is almost a guardian against just whimsical, you know, impulsive legislation. Some would argue that that's a good thing. Now, 
The Senate had done away with the filibuster as to certain things, namely judicial appointments and other things like that. And they had done that because during the Obama administration, Republicans were so resistant to any progress or anything that he was doing that they had to get around it. But they kept it for major legislation. Now that the Trump tax cuts, for instance, they got that through by another mechanism called reconciliation. This is more of a budgetary maneuver. I know we're getting technical, but it was more of a budgetary maneuver. And so long story short, look, I'll be dead honest with you. My opinion on the filibuster is that the filibuster should remain in effect. Because if you do away with the filibuster and all you need is a simple majority to do anything, then not only will the Democrats do whatever they want this term, but in two years if they lose the majority of the Senate or if in the future Republicans take control of the Senate, then the Republicans are going to jam through whatever they want. And then the United States Senate, which is already losing some ground, but it was supposed to be this you know, aristocratic guardian against excessive populism and whims, is going to be completely just partisan and just as as divided as the United States House of Representatives. And if you recall, when they were certifying the Electoral College votes, over 100 Republicans voted against certification before the objection could be introduced. Whereas the Senate, that number was like two to six to four or something like that. So you can tell the Senate is usually more on the right page in terms of governing and doing what's right. You can see it just by the Electoral College ratification. You don't want the Senate to become the House. You don't. So filibuster, I think, is an interesting thing. On the other hand, right, on the other hand, I might agree with McConnell that we should keep the filibuster, but on the other hand, here's the thing, right? This is a multifaceted issue, right? So on the one hand, you say, well, you should keep it. It keeps us away from populist whims, and that could be a good thing, right? On the other hand, here's the problem that Mitch has, right? Mitch has this problem. He jammed through. He jammed through not only a Supreme Court nominee after he was reluctant to hear Obama's nominee, who's now the Attorney General under Biden, not only did he jam through a Supreme Court nomination without even holding hearings on Obama's nominee, but Mitch McConnell, after the election was already held, which is not customary, which is not something that's normal. Usually, if there's a lame duck president and the other party's coming in, the Senate will not continue to confirm judges or nominations in that dead lame duck session. Mitch McConnell, quote, said, we're going to run through the tape and kept jamming nominations of Trump's through the Senate, even though the people had elected Joe Biden and he was soon to be sworn in as president on January 20th. Why does that matter? Well, Mitch wants to now say he wants to keep the filibuster intact, and I agree overall with that philosophy. But he didn't really adhere to that Senate tradition or adhere to the spirit of the Senate when he was jamming nominees through, so he loses some credibility he loses some credibility on that front. And further, here's the thing. Demo Republicans want Democrats to agree right now. They want Democrats to agree right now that they're going to allow the filibuster to continue. 
But what happens if Republicans, as soon as Democrats agree to let the filibuster exist, can just decide to stonewall every policy and every legislative agenda item that Biden wants to push forward? Then what are Democrats supposed to do? Right? On the other hand, you could see an argument for Schumer. He doesn't want to guarantee that the filibuster will remain in effect, right? Because that gives him leverage. He can say, look, I'm not going to, you know, go around the filibuster. I'm not going to jam things through, Mitch. That's not my intention. But it's hanging over your head. So if you choose to try to stonewall my legislation or stonewall my agenda, I'm going to have this ability and threat of doing away with the filibuster over your head. So don't try to just stonewall me for no reason. I don't want to take any option off the table. I want to hold your feet to the fire so we can actually get things done and not just be obstructionists for four years. So you see the two sides of the argument. Now, people are clamoring that, oh, my God, we're back to just partisan bickering. I don't think so. I think this is negotiating. I think this is leverage plays. I think the Senate will, in fact, come to an agreement one way or the other. I think the Congress in general will move forward. I think we will will see some progress finally in a, from our government. Maybe I'm being a little optimistic, but I just hear it in the tones. I think we're headed towards a good place, but that's a holdup, and it's something to just keep an eye on. It really, really is, um, and it's just something that that is important, and it's the inner workings of things. But it's it's very, very important, and. Here's why I say I think it'll change. Here's the, the truth, the cold hard facts. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to spin it the way they want to spin it. But again, this is logic and Larry. This is logical. This is objective. This is just a flat out truth. The fact is that this started, this, this stonewalling obstructionism started under President Obama. And the reason was not anything Obama did, right? This was because when President Obama became the president of the United States. When Bush was president, Democrats disagreed with a lot of things, but they still went about the business of governing, and they still sat down at the table with Republicans and agreed to pass bipartisan legislation and go to war in a bipartisan way and conduct the Senate business and the congressional business in a bipartisan way, even if they disagreed with Bush on some level. As soon as President Obama became president, there was this relentless obstructionism, this relentless effort to utilize the mechanisms of the Congress and especially the Senate to thwart anything in Obama's agenda. And that's when this hyper-partisanship in the Congress really started to take root. And it's a shame because if you listen to most left-oriented people today, they will tell you flat out that President Obama was a moderate, that President Obama wasn't far enough left for them. And right-wingers will still try to say that Obama was some kind of radical leftist. But the truth is, President Obama was a typical centrist Democrat who had, yes, a bit more of, a, of an economic agenda than President Clinton, which I agreed with most of his agenda just personally. It was a little more left and ambitious economically than, than President Clinton, but it wasn't anything that was radical or socialist. The fact is, in cold hard truth is that that opposition and that uh, notion of Obama as some radical was based primarily on race. 
because his name was Barack, Barack Hussein Obama, because he was African-American, because he was the first African-American president in history, they assigned these nonsensical traits to him and they acted as if he was some radical. And it was a damn shame because the man was brilliant and he had a great agenda, but they thwarted it at every turn. Now, that's not neither here nor there, and I'm not trying to dwell on that. But what I'm trying to say is you had Obama for eight years and Republicans tried to stonewall him every way they could with these Senate mechanisms. Then you had Trump come in, and Trump, for obvious reasons, there was a lot of resistance to Trump, and you also had the last eight years as precedent, so then the Congress continued to try to stonewall Trump, and 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 for better or worse, Trump had a lot of trouble getting his stuff through, too, because of these mechanisms, and we're kind of at a stalemate. I think that with Biden there now, who has a relationship with senators, who was a member of the Senate for so many years— who people kind of just accept as business as usual, for better or worse, for better or worse, I think there is some chance that they move forward in a, a somewhat bipartisan way and get back to the business of governing this country. And I'm praying for it and I'm hoping for it. And I hope that what they do with this Senate negotiations gets us back to a place where we could do that. I'm really, really hoping for it. And I think I do see it on the horizon. I do see it as a possibility. So let's see how those negotiations uh, take place. And look, here's the thing. I was reading an article in The New Yorker recently about COVID-19. And it was a wide-ranging article, right? It was. It touched on individual lives that were lost. It touched on where we failed governmentally in combating the, the COVID-19 crisis and you know, to the chagrin of maybe a lot of people on the left that didn't place all the blame exclusively on Donald Trump. Uh, it did place a significant portion of the blame on Donald Trump and not so much necessarily the literal decisions he made, although that came into play later in the crisis where he literally kind of usurped and undermined the efforts to get masks to be worn, even though they were shown to be very effective against this particular virus. He uh, undermined a lot of the messaging. He undermined a lot of the state's abilities to procure PPE. But aside from that, a lot of it was managerial, right? It wasn't Trump directly. It was the people that Trump appointed to run uh, the COVID-19 response. But, but that aside, in The New Yorker, one of the most interesting things I, I read, and this wasn't a new thing for me because I had seen this person on CNN discussing his response to vaccinations. One of the most interesting things that it said that when Deborah Burks was going around the country trying to see what states were handling COVID-19 best and which states were struggling, one of the people that really has been a shining example of how best to handle COVID-19, who has done a great job of handling COVID-19 as far as closings, infection rates, schools, restaurants, and now is elbows and shoulders above most other states as far as vaccinations. One individual was the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice. Jim Justice is the governor of West Virginia, and he has been doing a great job with COVID-19. He's vaccinating people at a, at a, a rapid rate. He's vaccinating them as soon as he can get the, the doses. He's getting it out to his people. And we all know West Virginia has some of the worst poverty problems in the country. And this guy is just soaring above everybody. Why do I bring him up? Well, here's why. He was a, he, he was a Republican growing up. He's a billionaire. 
He was uh, the owner of mining companies, so you know what baggage comes with that. He ran as a Democrat for governor. He won. After that, he switched parties to Republicans saying that he wanted to support President Trump, but he couldn't do that as a Democrat, so he became a Republican. We could talk about that forever, but it wasn't something like the guy, excuse me, in South Jersey, the Atlantic City area, where he switched just because of the impeachment. He switched well before that just because he wanted to support the president. So he says he probably always had some Republican blood in him. You know, it is what it is. But long story short, this is a guy who I read about him, you know, after seeing this article in The New Yorker. And this guy is, you know, he's pro-life, so he's against abortion. But he signed pro-union legislation in his state, pro-union. He increased the salaries of teachers. He refused to sign an anti-LGBTQ bill, which would have allowed businesses to refuse service to gay people. He refused to sign that. So he stood up for gay rights. He's had a mixed record on collective bargaining. Obviously, he was a, un- uh, a mining owner, so he's got issues with collective bargaining and unions. But my point in bringing Jim Justice up was: look at this guy, right? Here's a here's a man who some of your position, some of his positions, if you're a liberal, you would detest. Some of his positions, if you were conservative, you would cringe. Because how dare this man call himself a Republican and support this legislation? Yet this guy is killing it, doing, for for lack of a better term, figuratively killing it, doing well with COVID-19. Why? Because he's not guided by some stringent, rigid ideology. He's guided by the facts and the data and what makes sense. And I bring him up to say that if the United States Senate and the United States government at this time can seize on the moment can seize on the opportunity that they have before them and can try to start to transcend this cultural, you know, line in the sand and start to work together to compromise on legislation, we can maybe make some better progress and start running better again and start exchanging ideas and really coming up with solutions to the problems that face us. I would love for that to happen and the opportunity is before us. So with that being said, Let's talk about Biden. He's he's his first couple days in office. Let's talk about what he's gotten done. Let's talk about some of the things that are in motion. Let's talk about the actual executive orders that he's actually signed and placed forth. Uh, for us to look at. There's a lot here. And and again, this is a totally different vibe for Logic and Larry, but I'm liking it. This is actual news. So first things first, he signed an extension for the student loan forbearance. So President Trump had done this already, but he extended it. And the, the you know, not even to be critical, but just to be honest, Trump was doing it in a, almost a you know, it was wait and see approach. So he'd sign it for a couple months and then you weren't really sure if it was going to re-sign it, you weren't really sure if it was going to be extended. He kept signing. Basically, there's a forbearance on paying your student loans. Everybody who owes a federal student loan that's sourced from a federal bank or serviced by a federal uh, company is does not have to pay their student loans. And if you are currently enrolled in a public service loan forgiveness program, as to be honest with you, I am 
the non-payment per month still counts as a month's payment. And if you know anything about that program, you know that if you're in the public service loan forgiveness program, you have to do 10 years of payments and 10 years in public service, and then your loans will be forgiven because most people in public service don't make enough to pay off the interest and the principal per month. And so they'd be stuck with it for 25 years, almost like a mortgage. Um, so these non-payments also count towards your loan forgiveness. So you're basically getting over a year of not paying, yet it all counts as a year to you know towards your loan forgiveness. So it's huge. He extended that. Biden extended that through September. So those of us on federal student loan repayment plans will not have to pay your student loans until October of this year. Until October of this year at least. So you won't have a loan payment due until October, and if you're on public service loan forgiveness, it still counts. That's huge. Now, look, we can debate the merits of whether that's the right move, whether that benefits people who are already doing okay, things of that nature. It's a valid argument. There are two sides to that opinion. I think there's something to be said for people who are against that. It's just fair. It's just logical. It's just objective. That being said... It's going to help stimulate the economy because if you're somebody who has a $500 payment per month on your student loan, that's a huge chunk of money that you're not able to spend, you're not able to invest, you're not able to stimulate the economy with. So it just puts more money in the hands of people. And I know we're so focused on this $2,000 cash payout thing, which I'll get to in a minute, but these are other mechanisms and these are other ways that the government can put money in people's pockets to keep the economy going. And so at least if you're going to look at it from that rationale, it makes some sense. And that's one of the things that the government is doing. It's one of the first things Biden signed when he became president. So second thing is the DACA legislation. So Trump had signed an executive order that essentially was was trying to do away with DACA, which is a a deferred um, a deferred program where where people who were brought here as children that are immigrants but they're undocumented were brought here as children. There's a program DACA now. Now, President Obama wanted to get legislation, maybe even President Bush. I don't remember. Somebody tell me the facts there, but wanted to get legislation through Congress that would actually establish a legitimate congressionally approved program for people who were brought here not on their own volition, just as children. People came here at two years old, one years old, four years old, five years old. All of those things. Those people were brought here as children. And DACA allows for them to have ways to defer any type of immigration action against them also allows them to stay here to work and to hopefully become citizens eventually if they fulfill certain criteria i.e. they serve in the military they get a college degree here those types of things and so trump was to trump's to be fair he wasn't necessarily doing away with it just for the hell of it he was trying to use it as a bargaining chip like i'm going to get rid of daca unless you pass these draconian immigrant laws that primarily Target, you know, impoverished areas, areas of people of color, things. Trump's well documented. I'm not going to digress on Trump today. It's just not the night for it. Um, but Biden reaffirmed DACA, okay, and he he 
so if you're a DACA recipient, you don't have to worry anymore that ICE is going to come and try to deport you, which was terrifying for many people who have been here since they're one or two, three years old, who are Americans, who are uh, contributing Americans, who are our neighbors, who are fellow citizens, as far as I'm concerned, of this country. They don't have to worry anymore that they're going to have to live someplace they don't know anything about anymore, which is a beautiful, beautiful, great thing. Now, he also got rid of the Muslim travel ban. Biden got rid of the Muslim travel ban. So Trump had in place a travel ban from certain predominantly Muslim countries. That's gone. There's no more of that. Um, Now, he has this proposed package. So those are the executive orders, right? The executive orders were reaffirming DACA and doing away with the the Muslim travel ban. Now, he also had an executive order that said do away with this zero tolerance policy at the border of separating children that's a whole other topic it wasn't necessarily going on as much anymore but he did away with that officially except in cases where there's actual suspicion of child trafficking which is why it was in place in the first place it was just exploited through a legal loophole by trump but that's another conversation if you want to talk more about it dm me call me we'll talk about it um but he did that um and he halted construction of the border wall. Just he made asylum seeking easier. So Trump had made asylum seeking much harder for people. If you're coming from a country that's war torn, if you're coming from a country where there's a lot of poverty and you want to seek asylum, Trump made it more difficult to seek asylum. Now remember, asylum is legal, right? Asylum is a legal mechanism to try to apply for residency in this country. Asylum's not people sneaking across. Asylum's legal. It's a way that you try to apply to come in. Trump made it harder to apply via asylum. Biden's making it easier again. Now, here's the thing. So here's Biden's actual proposal. This is, so this isn't an executive order. This is not something that's already happening. This is actually a proposal that he hopes to try to get through Congress, and we'll see if that's going to happen. His proposal is to essentially allow for... Immigrants who are here and are undocumented to obtain citizenship, to apply to obtain citizenship through the following process, okay? They're going to have to apply for a green card, and they can apply for a green card, which is a permanent residency document. They can apply for a green card if they've been here for at least five years, They can apply for a green card if they've been here at least five years. And when they apply for the green card, they have to show, number one, that they've paid taxes since they've been here. They have to show that they've paid taxes. Number two, they have to go through a criminal background check. They cannot have a criminal record or cannot be an egregious criminal record if they want to go through this program. So they have to show they've paid taxes. They have to be here for five years and they have to have no criminal record. If they meet those criteria, they can receive a green card. At that point, if they receive the green card, then after three years of being a green card holder, continuing to pay taxes, continuing not to have a criminal record, they can apply to become permanent citizens of the United States. So that's a total of eight years. They have to show they paid taxes. They have to show they have no criminal record, and they have to continue to stay here for eight years. That, to me, ladies and gentlemen, is a sensible, common-sense, practical solution to our immigration problems. Why would we want 11 million people in the country illegally 
when the majority of those people can be converted into legal citizens, assuming they meet those criteria. And then if you're going to deport people and you're going to send people out of the country, it's really, really difficult to do it with 11 million people, especially people who are contributors to the society, especially people who are working here, who have jobs here, who have family here, who have connections here, who are members of the community. It's much easier to enforce immigration policy and to deport those who are wrongdoers if the vast majority of them are allowed to become legal citizens, therefore under the legal purview of the United States, legal taxpayers, legal everything else, legal license holders everything and then deport the small fraction who don't actually who don't actually go through that process which is going to be a much smaller percentage and then you can target those wrongdoers and concentrate on litigating against them and deporting them while the vast majority of the law-abiding contributors that are here as undocumented immigrants get to stay and get to become full-time citizens, which should be what we all want. And Sean makes a good point. Most people just overstayed their visas. Now they have a better mechanism to become citizens. And you got to remember, some people overstay their visas because there's too many restrictions and they'd have to leave. But they're, they're great contributing residents of the United States and we don't want them to leave and they don't want to leave. So why is the process so hard? This would expedite the process, this would streamline the process, this would make the process much better. So that's where we are with that. So moving on from the immigration, but remember, those are just proposals. So the citizenship, the pathway to citizenship is a legislative proposal, right? And Biden is looking for give and take. He has some technological funding in there for border security. There's a lot of rhetoric right now that I've heard that there's nothing in there about border security. It's all just amnesty. No, that's not true. There's stuff in there for border security. It revamps Border Patrol's technological capabilities to enforce uh, immigration policy at the border and to thwart narcotic activity, those types of things. But it's a give or take. Biden's looking for a bipartisan effort. So that path to citizenship is a legislative proposal. We'll see if he can get it passed in the Congress, in the House and Senate, and see if he can get some Republican support for it. But the DACA reaffirmation and the Muslim travel ban being rescinded and those things, those are actually executive orders that are already in effect. All right. So remember that. Moving on. He issued executive orders on COVID-19. First of all, he allowed different governmental agencies to enforce and enact the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of needed materials to get the vaccines out faster. And one example that they gave at the press briefing the other day was they are authorizing government agencies to enact the Defense Production Act to force private companies and private manufacturers to start manufacturing needles, which are an important, obviously important component of the vaccination process. So already we're going to have private companies ramping up production of needles so that we can get these vaccines churned out much faster. He did that. He's also authorizing 100 FEMA sites. So FEMA is obviously the disaster relief uh, branch of the federal government. They respond to hurricanes, other natural disasters, those types of humanitarian crises. He's authorized FEMA and he's asking FEMA to now establish 100 sites FEMA-sponsored federal sites to administer the vaccine. So across this country, there will be 100 FEMA sites. 100 FEMA sites. 
to administer the vaccine. It's another part of his executive actions that he's entered into. So hopefully we'll see a vast ramping up of the COVID-19 response with these inactions. And when I say inactions, it's E-N, not I-N, if that's even a word, but you know what I mean. So then moving on from there, Biden has enacted an executive order which guarantees $15 minimum wages for all federal employees. Now that could be the first step to getting a federal $15 minimum wage. Many liberals hope that's the case. Right now it's just anybody working for the federal government. Uh, So he's trying to do that. Yeah, just some to have a little bit of a conversation on the $15 minimum wage. To have a little bit of the conversation there. The Congressional Budget Office, which is a, a, a nonpartisan entity, they do analyses for different proposals. They do analyses for different legislative items. And they try to let the public know and Congress know what the financial budgetary effect of those policies might be. Um the CBO says and estimates that if, 50, if we were to enact a $15 minimum wage across the entire country, we would lose 1.3 million jobs, uh, businesses would lose income, prices for consumers would raise, the economy would slow. They don't say how much it would slow, but the economy would slow. It'd be tough for small businesses. Uh, and those are the negative impacts. Now, the positive impacts would be that a higher minimum wage, a $15 minimum wage, would help American taxpayers. And it would help American taxpayers because there's this problem we have right now where we have the working poor in this country, right? We have... The working poor is a group of people that are are full-time employed or they can't get full-time employment and therefore they're forced into part-time employment. And many of them are employed by big companies. And they, they... they're employed by you know big companies and these big companies pay them menial wages they don't pay them enough to really live on they don't pay them enough and they don't give them enough benefits to actually take care of everything they need to take care of and so those companies get away with paying a very low wage but on the other hand the american taxpayer picks up the tab in the form of sub you know subsistence subsidizing their living expenses, subsidizing their health insurance, subsidizing these workers' uh, food, subsidizing their housing, and all of these other elements of living. These companies are basically getting away with paying a low wage, and then we pick up the tab as the American taxpayer. So one argument for the $15 minimum wage is that it would be a help to American taxpayers who are currently picking up the tab. Now here's my thoughts on it, right? The market, the market dictates what a wage is worth, right? And there's many elements that go into a market, but the market dictates what you're going to get paid for a certain job or based on your certain skill set. The fact is, this is just objective, cold, hard facts. If you look at lawyers, for instance, as of which I am, there's a lot of lawyers now. There's more lawyers than there were, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so lawyer wages aren't even that great. People think they are. They're not. Lawyer wages are very average unless you're a certain kind of lawyer. And that's because there's so many lawyers. Because the market dictates that 
you're not as valuable because there's more of you. So, so you're not at a premium. Whereas doctors in this country, which is a whole other conversation we can get into when we talk about health insurance and universal health care and things of that nature, but doctors are at a, a, a bigger premium for a lot of reasons. Not necessarily because it's a free market, but because of the insurance companies and et cetera. But different skills are at different premiums. So the minimum wage in this country, believe it or not, is already, in a lot of cases, an inflated wage above what the market would demand for the same skilled labor, right? So you need a minimum wage, and you need the minimum wage to be adequate because you don't want it to be so low that it's somebody shouldn't even be working. That's not the society we want to live in, right? But if you make the minimum wage too high, it doesn't necessarily mean that all the wages in the middle are going to go up. And so you could be arbitrarily increasing a wage that is going to arbitrarily inflate prices and arbitrarily put pressure on the consumer and arbitrarily put pressure on small business where the market doesn't necessarily make up that cost. And so it's got to be absorbed by the small business or by the consumer. And that could result in some negative economic consequences. Now, a big company like Walmart or McDonald's, they can absorb that minimum wage very easily, right? But a small pizzeria or a small deli or another small business, a small landscaping business, they can't necessarily absorb that cost. So to have a universal minimum wage across all regions, across all states, and affecting all businesses could hurt some small businesses, right? It would almost be an advantage to some of the bigger companies. So, and Sean, Sean, you know why I love the point you just made? Because it's so damn true. It's because the consumer demand for a professional athlete is – people always post these memes. Well, why does a professional athlete get paid so much more than a teacher? Well, it's obvious. It's because people pay millions worth of dollars for merchandise and tickets to go see these professional athletes. The market dictates that their salary is going to be high because they're in demand and no one can play at that skill. There's a lot less of them that can play at that skill. Just great analogy, Sean. But look, the minimum wage, it's got to go up. It's got to go up. Period. But what I would argue is if they're going to actually pass a minimum wage bill, which I don't know if they're going to with the way that the how closely the Senate's divided. If they're going to raise the minimum wage substantially, then in my opinion, it shouldn't just be this arbitrary number 15 an hour because we just came up with it. And that's what they're protesting for at McDonald's. It should be. By region, what makes sense in a given region, right? If the cost of living in Appalachia is substantially lower than the cost of living in New Jersey, then the wage does not have to be as high as it is where the cost of living is higher, for instance. If a small business and the majority of small businesses are going to go under because the wage is too high for them to deal with, then there should be some mechanism to gradually introduce them to that wage or to vary it by region and ability, right? There has to be some kind of actual fact-based, you know, regional implementation, implementation of these things. And Rick points out the Aluciato Justin Bieber. Look, everybody would rather listen to Aluciato than Justin Bieber. But the fact is, Justin Bieber has millions of listeners, and unfortunately, I don't have that many. So I dictate a lower price. It sucks. <laughs> it's, but it's true. But I appreciate that example, Rick. But um, 
I'm not arguing against it, right? I, I think we need higher wages, period. And hopefully those higher wages will raise all of our wages. And because the fact is, right, the fact is you can't pretend. The fact is that wages have stagnated in this country, okay? Companies continue to make tons of money. Stockholders continue to increase their profit margins. And a lot of us are stockholders. Let's not, let's not BS. We have 401ks. We have investments. So a lot of us are stockholders. But people who make tons of money on speculating and make tons of money just owning companies and corporations have continued to see their profit margins go through the roof and have continued to get richer and richer and richer and richer. And part of that's due to the tax code, too, because the tax code was gutted under Reagan. But that's a whole other topic for another day. We need tax reform. And people who are regular wage earners, be it middle class, professional class, working class, lower class, those people, those people have had wage stagnation. So they're not keeping up with inflation. They're not able to have the same buying power that they did 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that's why the middle class is struggling so much now. That's a problem you can't ignore. That's a problem that has to be discussed, and it should be being discussed on both sides. Interestingly, Trump tapped into it because a lot of Trump voters are struggling. It's not this old conservative thing of just pro-business. Trump voters were understood working-class problems. A lot of them were working-class. They, they felt this wage stagnation. So that should be a uniting thing for these parties to work out. That should be a uniting issue. We need higher wages. The wages have simply not kept up. And that's why people need two incomes. The husband and wife both need to work full-time jobs to even afford a decent middle-class lifestyle. That wasn't the case 60 years ago. It's almost impossible to, to afford a house for some people in some areas, especially in my generation. It's difficult to afford cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that hurts the economy overall. There has to be some redistribution at some point of wealth in this country. And part of the way you can get there is to increase wages. And part of the way you can get there is to increase the bottom wages, which are the minimum wages. But we should just do it in a smart way. That's just my opinion. It should be data-driven. It should be by region. It really should. And, and Andrew makes a good point. You know, corporations are too, too concerned with profit. And, and Rick and I talked about this too uh, last week, which was this idea in Keynesian economics where Keynes was concerned that the ownership, the owners of capital would shift from people like the barons, robber barons some called them, or just these titans of industry in the early 20th century, late 19th century, who weathered the storm when the company lost money or gained money. They were still making a billion dollars. They did. Who cares if the company was a little bit down or a little bit high year to year because they were always rich and it was their company and they wanted to outdo the other guy and they wanted to build the town around it and they wanted to keep it afloat. It was their baby. They were connected to it intimately, that company. So if it went down a little in profit or went up a little in profit, it didn't matter. They stuck with it. Keynes was concerned that as we shifted to a speculator economy where people far away own and buy and sell, buy and sell shares of a company, that we would get to this place where they don't care anymore. And, and one little bit of a downturn in a year would mean that they lose every bit of investment they put into it. So their only agenda is to maximize the worth of the company year to year to maximize their profit. And that results in an economy where we're constantly just trying to cut costs and downsize to maximize investors' return on investment and therefore not weathering storms. And it's creating this horrible uh, income inequality, which is part of the reason we have the 
rhetoric and we have the unrest that we have and it's only going to get worse unless we rectify the income inequality so my position is not to ignore income inequality or to act as if it doesn't exist or to act as if it's not a serious problem but my position is that if we're going to talk about the minimum wage and we're going to try to rectify the problem it shouldn't just be this broad-based make it 15 dollars across the board across the country minimum wage that's not necessarily intricately addressing the problems the way that it needs to be so it should just be rolled out regionally. It should be rolled out with a target reason to. It should keep small businesses in mind because the last thing we want, especially coming out of a pandemic, especially coming out of this economic contraction of record proportion, especially coming out of this, you know, economic crisis that we haven't seen really in in years. It's unprecedented. The last thing you want to do is pile on small business right out of a recession, tell them they're just getting back on their feet, but now you got to pay $15 an hour across the board overnight. That's the wrong move. So I get where Biden's going with it. I like the first step. I think it's got to be legislated. I think we got to talk about it more. But to just jump on that right away, I don't think is is the, the best thing. We got It's got to be talked about more in depth. Now, with that being said, we'll talk about the stimulus. One other thing Biden signed with the executive order is... Um, look, so, so he signed an executive order that would allow people who didn't normally file their taxes the way that you're supposed to, or hadn't filed their taxes, they would get the stimulus payments. A lot of those people were left out of the first and second stimulus because they hadn't filed their taxes the way that was traditional. Biden expanded that. So they will get stimulus checks. He's also now proposing, he couldn't do it through executive order, but he's proposing that. So the first thing was just changing the criteria for who gets a check. So the money that's already earmarked for people for stimulus checks, now more people will get those checks because he changed the criteria. That's fine. Now, the other thing is he is now proposing an additional $1,400 on top of the $600 to go out to every American making less than $75,000 as part of the stimulus. And I see, look, I see a lot of memes out there nonstop and other things. And look, at the end of the day, um, there are people in Congress, including Joe Manchin, who's who's a Democratic vote they'd need, even if they were going to push this thing through, through reconciliation, they were going to try to push this through. He might not have he might not have the votes. He already said that he thinks the money, if there's going to be additional stimulus payments to Americans, that the stimulus payments should be targeted, i.e. the stimulus payments should go to people that truly need extra money, are truly going to spend that extra money, truly can use that extra money to make up for shortfalls that they've been experiencing due to the COVID epidemic. Uh, so it doesn't look like, at least when the way Manchin said it, that it's likely that they're going to necessarily be able to jam through just $1,400 payments to every American making less than $75,000 a year. Now, as one of the people that would have received that check, and I already pledged I'd donate at least $500 of it, the fact is... The fact is that I'm working. And a lot of people that I know that are saying, oh, you owe me, there's all these memes, you owe me $1,400, you owe me this money. Look, we all want extra money. Who doesn't want money? Everybody wants money. I get it. 
I get it. But a lot of us, if we're still working, and if you haven't seen your income go down, and you're still working, and you're still surviving, then the money probably would be better spent going to somebody who's in worse situation than you are. Somebody who needs rental assistance. Somebody who owns a small business who is trying to keep that small business afloat. The money should go to them. So I don't know that this universal stimulus payment is going to happen, and I don't know that it should. I know people don't want to hear that, but but pause too, because there's a lot of left-leaning people that I see that are constantly saying, I want my $1,400, we need $1,400. Okay. Well, if you believe in socialist principles and you believe in altruistic principles as somebody who leans left, then you, better than anybody, should be able to say, well, I don't need it, but the person who's struggling more does need it. In a true socialist society or a true altruistic left-leaning society, you take the resources from those who don't need it, who are comfortable, and you give it to those who truly need it. We should all be kind of saying, well, if I make a decent salary and I haven't lost my salary and I've already gotten 1200 plus 600 1800 total cash payout, maybe this next stimulus should go to people at a lower threshold of income. And I'm not saying that no one should get it. I'm saying maybe the threshold should be lowered to 50 grand, maybe 40 grand. I don't know. Maybe the money should be rolled into programs that help people with childcare, with uh, housing assistance, you know, nutrition assistance. I don't know. He's proposing 1400 Biden. I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know that Congress is going to pass it. I don't know that they should. That's going to be a debate that's going to happen going forward. That's what he's proposing. And we will see. We will see. If it's seventeen hundred if it's seventy five hundred and I get another fourteen hundred dollars, like I said, I'm gonna donate a few hundred dollars of that to somebody who needs it more than me, probably five hundred dollars. It was gonna be a thousand, but then the piecemeal six hundred to now fourteen, I can't do it, but probably five hundred because I'm I'm gonna practice what I preach. I'm not just up here talking nonsense. A lot of people, you know, talk nonsense and I'm not gonna, so I'll practice what I preach. Um and I'm not saying no one could use it. I'm just saying that's just common sense. And remember, I keep saying this. We're proposing all these expenditures, and we need expenditures. We need the government to spend money to get us out of this recession. The government has spent money throughout history on wars, on the GI Bill, on building roads, on subsidizing mortgages. The government has always subsidized the people, and unfortunately, the government has had a selective way of doing it that normally helped white Americans and not other types of Americans. And that's why we have so much inequality especially from an economic standpoint, which then breeds into everything else. This is well documented. But nonetheless, the government has a long history of subsidizing its people to spur economic growth. So I'm in no way saying that we need to be practicing austerity right now. And I'm in no way saying that we need we shouldn't be investing in people or spending money to get where we need to go. But I'm saying it should be balanced. There should be a debate and it should be... 100 to percent you know 100 percent uh in a a targeted way because we are going to pay this stuff back guys it's going to fall on all of our tax burdens in the years ahead so if we're in our 30s we're going to be paying this debt back for the rest of our lives at that tax rate which we can afford if the economy is spurred enough that we all do well and we're all prosperous. So it's a it's a balancing act. You want the government to help us get prosperous so that we can afford the tax burden later. But you don't want to make it such a high, crazy tax burden 
that we struggle with it, you know, that it's that it's arbitrary, right? That we're just spending money for no reason that is going to be difficult to recoup later, but that doesn't necessarily have the targeted benefits we want. So that's that's where we are with that little piece. But it is in the works, guys. Um, another thing Biden did was he restored the collective bargaining uh, ability to federal workers. So federal workers, if you're working for the federal government, you can collectively bargain again. That's a pro-union agenda item. That was an executive order. Um, he elevated the science advisor, which previously was not a member of the actual cabinet, was not a member of the Security Council. Science advisor is now going to be a member of the Security Council, right? And that's Eric Lander, who was an MIT and Harvard scientist. He will now be on the actual cabinet. In my opinion, that's a huge, huge, huge step forward for the country. Science advisor, I absolutely love it. It's somebody fact-based, science-based, who's now going to be helping to really make key decisions for the country. You can't get much better than that. We need that in this country. It's just a great thing. We had the first uh, African-American Secretary of Defense confirmed just the other day, Lloyd Austin. He's a retired general. He is now the Secretary of Defense. He's, a, by all accounts, a revered general, highly qualified. I heard the first call he made was to our NATO allies to ensure them that, look, America is 100% supporting NATO. Reaffirm our support for our allies. We know that both China and Russia are existential threats to our country. So it was great that he reaffirmed our allegiance to NATO. It's a vital allegiance. And while we do need them to contribute a bit more, we shouldn't be alienating them. We shouldn't be threatening to alienate them. So that was big. Uh, Mitch McConnell did make a statement uh, regarding Mr. Austin that he voted for the waiver because this is the thing. Since Austin was only a recently retired general, there has to be a waiver because the law has been for the longest time that you don't want somebody who just left the military to all of a sudden transition into a civilian position that oversees the military. The idea being we are a civilian-run country. We are not a military dictatorship. We don't want too much military influence in the civilian leadership of the country. So you have to get a waiver if you only if you're within seven years of retirement from the military. You have to get a waiver to be a civilian leader. McConnell voted for it. Most of the Senate voted for it. They confirmed him, but McConnell did give pause. He said, "Look, we got to really talk about this. This is the second recently retired general that we're putting in charge of the armed services. I thought we wanted civilian leadership. You know, there's always this issue of the." military-industrial complex where we are funding so much to the military and giving so much credence to the military, and if somebody's so closely associated with the military as opposed to being completely done with it and a civilian, we might have issues with that. So he approved it, but he did raise that issue. I thought it was a, a, a legitimate issue to raise. Um, so just something to talk about. Uh, that was, this was the first African-American Secretary of Defense. That, that's just, again... Those who say voting doesn't matter or, oh, Biden's so moderate that it's just trading one evil for the other evil or they're all the same or because he's an old white guy, he can't do anything positive. Yeah, tell that to the DACA kids. Tell that to the DACA kids who now can sleep better at night. Tell that to people like Mr. Austin or to African-Americans across the country who now have a, a black secretary of defense 
and an African-American woman and South Asian-American woman as vice president. Tell that to all those people that it doesn't make a difference who you vote for, that voting doesn't make a difference, that they're all the same. Tell that to them. So that was a, an interesting achievement, and I'm, I'm excited for Mr. Austin to be Secretary Austin. Um, I, I'm going to take a, a quick couple-minute break, very, very quick, and then when I come back, I just want to talk about, uh, I want to pivot from all this factual stuff I've been doing and all this informative stuff and just talk a little bit about what we saw with Dr. Fauci and a little bit about this impeachment thing. So bear with me, listen to the jazz, give me two minutes. And I'll be right back to finish discussing that little portion. Logic and Larry podcast, and I'll be right back. So let's just briefly, briefly, briefly talk about, briefly talk about this Fauci thing. So did anybody else see the press conference, the, the White House briefing where Dr. Fauci was allowed to just pretty much unfettered, unfettered, just allowed to just talk about science with no president standing behind him and with no overseer whatsoever? Dr. Fauci just came out and just started talking straight up science. Straight up science. It was something. And it was interesting because he was getting real technical. Really, really technical about science. And he was explaining the receptors and he was explaining how the mutations from the UK and the mutations from South Africa and how those mutations affected what they actually meant in a science. And it's crazy because I don't know much about science and I was never good at science. I was horrible at science. I struggled mightily. I think I passed biology because I had to take some science to get the hell out of Rutgers. I had to take some science. I took biology and I got snuck away with a C minus, I think, just to graduate. So I'm not good. My brain doesn't work that way. I'm an idiot when it comes to science. Um, And I was able to follow it just because I was able to listen to him And he explained things, and then, you know, um, I was able to just listen to it, and he was just being like a science teacher up there, and he seemed almost excited. He He was ready to explain the science, and I hadn't heard the science, and he was a science leader, a doctor, to tell the country what was happening with COVID-19. It was beautiful, and I actually understood. 
I actually understood. I understood what he meant. And he, he basically said, look, the, the vaccines are still going to be effective against these other mutations. And one of the interesting things he said, one of the interesting things he said was that he felt liberated. <laughs> he literally said, I feel more liberated. I feel better now that it's a new administration. And the truth is, it was just refreshing to watch that presser, wasn't it? It was just refreshing to watch somebody go out there and be able to speak their mind and teach us science and tell us about science without anybody breathing down their neck, without any nonsense messaging, just to have a, a doctor there telling us. It was beautiful. And the whole... The whole... <laughs> Sean, true. We should do that kind of game. You guys should play shot games with me. I say certain things all the time. Um... But uh, it was just good, and, and then when, when we had the, the conversations back and forth with the media, it just seemed, it took on this cerebral nature. It took on this academic nature that was just refreshing. I, I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten what it was like to see a cerebral, high-minded conversation with high-minded questions and high-minded responses actually talking about facts and data and, and, and governing. And it was just night and day, and I thought it was worth pointing out. Look, nonetheless, you saw these Fox headlines, and there was a couple people on my Facebook page, some usual culprits. They just started seizing on just silly stuff. Like Biden wasn't wearing a mask at one point, so now you know he wasn't wearing a mask after you know issuing the order that all masks have to be worn on federal property. And it was like, okay, Fox News was trying to make a big story to that. Five minutes after announcing the executive order about masks, Biden's seen on federal property not wearing a mask. I mean, come on. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, okay. Biden didn't get COVID. He spent the whole campaign season wearing a mask, socially distancing, never got COVID. Meanwhile, Trump got COVID. Everybody in the Rose Garden got COVID. Are you really going to act like because he wasn't wearing a mask for a couple minutes in the White House after a long day of inauguration, after he's been tested all the time, social distancing every time we see him, that not wearing a mask is a big story? That Fox has to keep him honest by reporting on that and then people are sharing it like it's a groundbreaking thing. Yeah, Jay could definitely drop names, but you're out here just out of nowhere. Well, Biden's not wearing a mask. Ooh. That's the biggest thing we got to worry about now. Ooh. So you got Fox out here and Fox's little minions. The people that try to act like they're trying to move forward bipartisanly and they're trying to do the right thing. These little people, they're starting posting these little Fox News tidbits. Just silly, silly, silly stuff. Petty stuff. Petty stuff. So you saw the issue with the... Uh, mask, and then somebody posted that you know Biden's administration says they're going to be transparent. But what about the fact that she said she had to circle back with some people because she didn't know the answer? That wasn't very transparent. It's another thing Fox was posting that some other people shared. Just silly, just just silly stuff. This is what they're grasping. And you know what's funny? I welcome it. You want to talk about that, guys? You want to bicker over that? Be my guest and bicker away, bicker all damn day, because if that's the biggest of our problems and that's the highest hypocrisy that we have, well then, it's a brand new day and I'm loving it. We can fight about that minutia all day. 
while we're talking about these people obsessed with minutia, what's with this guy, Josh Hawley, this senator from Missouri? Forget his party. What is he up to? He's one of the only two senators who voted against Austin as the defense secretary. Is he just out here trying to cause trouble because he looks like a fool after that insurrection? This guy. When I talked about the Senate earlier and I was saying how much I admire the Senate and their mechanisms and the way they conduct themselves and the way they do business, Hawley is going against all of that with this nonsense. This ridiculous nonsense. This ridiculous treasonous nonsense. And I'm calling it like it is, guys. What's wrong with this guy? It's okay to have a, a legitimate objection to a nominee and to vote no, but it just seems like this holy guy is just out to just cause trouble. Honestly, it really, do, it really does. And while we're speaking to him, how about this woman Green in Congress from Georgia, this congresswoman who introduced articles of impeachment against Biden already. It's not going anywhere, but she's a QAnon-er. She's introducing articles of impeachment on Biden now. So we have this. And it's funny because we used to spend whole podcasts talking about this crap. But thank God now this is over. We could talk about policy. We spent the whole po- how would you guys think about that? Just for one second. Listen to me replay this pod this this playlist real quick and just think about that. Think about that, guys. Think about that. These Think about that. We spent an entire podcast talking about policy and ideas and legislation and news and things you could tell people to educate them and inform them about what's going on. Things that you could think to yourself about what your opinion is. And your opinion doesn't have to be my opinion. I'm going to give you the facts, give you my opinion, and you make your own opinion. But we are finally talking about real substance. Real substance. And Sean, I want to hear one time what you think, what district she's from. But yeah, just crazy. So she did that. Hawley voted against the nomination of the defense secretary. And then we got these little minions on Facebook reposting these silly stories. But you know what? Good for them. Let them do it. Let them do it. We, we're supposed to have political argument in this country. They should criticize. You want to criticize Biden for not wearing a mask? Go for it. It's fair game. He didn't wear a mask. He signed an executive order that he didn't wear a mask. It's fair game. It's just, it's just that if you want to equate that to anything we've been dealing with for the last you know, however many years... Good luck, because it's not the same. But okay, but all right. Whatever makes you happy, whatever floats your boat, whatever gets you to sleep at night, that's great. That's fine. So the last bit of news is this impeachment news. So the impeachment is going to take place. Republicans want to delay it. Democrats want to push it through very quickly. At the end of the day, uh, look, if you want to delay it a couple weeks to properly prepare because you want to nominate, get get certain cabinet people confirmed, I don't really have a problem with that. I don't see why they got to rush it. I really don't. You want to get some swing votes? Look, McConnell behind closed doors has said, it's been reported, been reported that McConnell behind closed doors has said that he wants Trump gone. That he wants Trump out of the way, that he thinks he had a hand in the insurrection. So you never know if McConnell votes for it. Especially if he delays it and this, you know, the emotion's gone and Trump's more in the background. Maybe he has more leeway to vote for it. Just, I'm just saying. Just hear it out. Let them present, like, the evidence. This is a, an actual Senate trial, okay? This isn't supposed to be some predetermined thing. And the other reporting that came out today about the impeachment was that Certain Republicans, one of them even a senior former White House official in the Trump White House, former officials have come out and said 
that they want Trump to be impeached. They actually, there was a memo circulating amongst Republicans today. CNN, this was from CNN, there was a a memo circulating. It was a nine-point memo. A nine-point memo circulating as to why Trump should be impeached. And this was circulated by Republicans. By Republicans. So there is a push to impeach him. But on the other hand, there's a lot of Republicans saying, we're not voting to convict no matter what. We're acquitting him. And at by all reports right now, by all reports right now, the chances of him actually getting convicted are low. Chances of him actually getting convicted are low. So we'll see what happens. But here's my problem with that whole process, right? This is a serious issue, right? This is an actual Senate trial where somebody's going to have to be convicted or acquitted. And the fact that people are already coming out, not arguing for or against, but just flat out saying, I'm not voting for that. This is where my vote is, as if it's a a law that's already been set in stone is troubling, right? Shouldn't they be sitting back and listening to all the facts and all the evidence presented? And if Trump truly does deserve to be impeached because of his actions, if his actions were actually something that caused an insurrection in the country and they truly believe that after seeing the facts, shouldn't they wait to see if that's the facts and then vote accordingly and not just tell people how they're going to vote already? That seems so disingenuous. And how are Americans supposed to have faith in the people that run our country if they're that disingenuous? You have to listen to the facts and evidence. And look, if they don't amount to insurrection, then you vote to acquit. But if they do, then you vote to convict. Why are you coming out already and saying what you're going to do? I don't like it. And I don't like Democrats trying to ram it through either like it's some kind of power play. Let it chill out. Do it right. Do it correctly. Do it with honor. Do it ethically. Do it ethically. And, and where the chips fall, they fall. And that's it. Do it properly. Do it properly. I'd love to see them do it properly. Let's see if they do it. Doesn't seem like they are right now. Let's see an actual trial. Let's see them actually do it. That's what I'd like to see. And, and if you don't think... Look, I'm not saying that it, it's insurrection or not, but undermining the validity of a free election wherein we saw absolutely no or or at most ridiculously de minimis evidence of any kind of fraud or any kind of impropriety we should have been congratulating and clapping for each other as a nation congratulating and clapping for the the people that work tirelessly to count ballots we should be celebrating next fourth of july at that barbecue quote, Andrew, unquote, keeps talking about, that's the 4th of July. Not only am I going to celebrate the progress of this country with Kamala Harris becoming vice president, Joe Biden being president, not only am I going to celebrate the progress of this country for its diversity, and not only am I going to celebrate this country for those things, but I'm going to celebrate this country for having a free and fair election in the middle of a pandemic. I'm going to celebrate as an American, as an American, that we were able to do that. But how do you not call at least a little bit into question somebody? At least a little bit into question somebody who tried the entire time with no basis in fact to call into question the validity of that evidence. Call into question our achievement as a nation that we were able to obtain. 
That's a messed up thing. That's a real messed up thing to do. Is to to undermine our free election, which we should be celebrating. So how does that not give you any pause to at least listen to the facts? I don't know. But I'm hoping these senators at least do something just fair. Just listen to it fairly. If he doesn't deserve to be convicted, don't vote to convict him just because you're partisan. If he does deserve to be convicted, don't vote to acquit just because you're partisan. Just do your job. Be objective. Be logical. Be real. Don't be partisan. Be real. That's all I'm asking. Hopefully they do it. We'll see. We'll see. Now, there was also some news that Trump paid uh, some of the organizers of the rally that led to the protest. That's interesting news. Some people on the left have long been speculating that some of the protesters were hired. I don't take that news as them being hired. What it was was the campaign paying the organizers of the rally, people who set up the stage, people who set up the sound. Those things are commonplace in any rally. So it is what it is. I don't know that that leads to actual organization, although I wouldn't put it past people like, you know, Giuliani or whatever to actually be bringing agitators in for whatever reason they may have. I don't know. I wouldn't be putting it past them. I really wouldn't. So you never know. But that's that's the news out of that front. It's interesting because the other thing media wise, guys, I thought I really thought that I really wondered and I was I was almost worried that that the media would not be able to give up. And let's be honest, when they were even in the Biden interview, they kept trying to stoke the flames. The media's got issues and you got to you got to be wary of the media to some extent. I'm not saying fake news or the media is the enemy or any of that craziness because they're not. They're they're necessary to a free society. But you could tell the media even in the Biden press conference. I mean, they were clearly, okay, clearly trying to get Fauci to say things, trying to get Biden, trying to get them to say things to disparage Trump in a way, almost just so they would have a narrative to run with, with this us against them stuff that sells well, that gets clicks, that gets, you know, attention. They were trying to do that, all right? And Biden and his administration, to their credit, and Fauci too, weren't having it, okay? They straight up weren't having it. But they were trying to do that. So you got to be wary of them. They were trying to kind of stoke those flames. But that being said, I was impressed. I was impressed that the media, I thought they would dwell on Trump and just not get off Trump and just constantly be talking about Trump because he's a big story. And it worried me. Like, are they just going to be fixated on this and not actually report on what's happening and just talking about all his failures and things? And to be honest, to be honest, that's not what happened. The media has really pivoted, and it's impressive, and it's great to see. They've pivoted to Biden. Fox is hating on Biden for the mask. Good for them. CNN's reporting on the first 100 days and, and, and his different nominations and his executive orders. And MSNBC is, is reporting on the same, and they're even criticizing him a little bit for his stuff that's not left enough. And everybody's reporting on the actual new administration. So it really, truly does seem to be a new, a new page that we're turning, and it, it could really be good for the country. And so we'll see what happens, but it's looking like we truly may be able to finally get back to the business of the people, the people's business and governing and doing what's right, which is very exciting for me. Now, it's almost 11. I'm tired this week. I am going to have guests lined up for the next couple weeks. We still have to do Rick part two with his... uh, life story we still have to get charles riley in here to debate left and right on me 
We've still got to get Bobby Krills on here to talk about life. We got some. We still got to get Sean Bracken back. Sean, political action Bracken. We got to get him back to discuss just dissect the Georgia vote and start talking about some of this legislation. I think he'll have some good analytics on that. Uh, but tonight, I'm not going to take phone calls because I'm just I'm just tired and uh, talk for two hours now because there's so much to talk about. There's so much news. So we're going to go back to more of a news format. But I still want a lot of calls because I want to hear different conversations about legislation and, and you'll see as as legislation kind of comes to a head there's going to be main topics that are going to pop up it's not just going to be this litany of different legislative agenda items like we have now it's going to be like something going on in the senate where they're debating that specific law and there'll be plenty of time to debate it argue it talk about it so i welcome all the phone calls and all of that once that happens um final thing i'll say guys is just look this this you know how I feel about you. You know how I feel about the listeners. You know how I feel about this podcast and what we do. Um, and, and I think what we're doing here is very important. And, and I just you know want to reiterate out there to anybody that, look, I do this because, A, I've been encouraged to do it for a while now, just talking and just being myself. Since I was a kid, just talking about things. I read things and know things, political science major, went to law school. I'm well-versed in this stuff, so people had long been encouraging me. And I was a radio show host with Raw Radio. I was a radio show host with Blatant Minority. I was a radio show host with Stuff Junk Things and Whatnot. I've been doing this. I have a microphone because I've been doing this. I've been doing music. I've been this personality in my own circles for a very long time. For a very long time. So I was encouraged to pick up the mic and do this podcast. But make no mistake... Some nights I'm tired. I don't want to do it at all. Some nights I really love doing it. And, I, and once I get on here, once I start talking to you guys and get the music playing, I love doing it. But it's a lot of work. And why do I bring that up? I bring that up to just say, look, I'm here exchanging ideas and, and I give people platforms. I'm giving people platforms to come on, talk, reach their own audience members, have their own platform. You know, and I rep everybody. I give everybody props who comes on here. I love everybody's individual struggle, everybody's individual hustle, everybody's individual personality, everybody's individual perspective. That's the kind of person I am, okay? And when you come on here, we're going to have debates. And, and I don't just mean in the podcast. And we have the discussion group and we have the podcast page and just my regular Facebook and things of that nature. And we just get together for a beer. I'm gonna, we're gonna talk, we're gonna debate issues, and it's all about debating issues. And one main thing about this whole movement is the free exchange of ideas and the free exchange of debate. And when we get into debates, I'm going to take you to task on debating, okay? If we're debating and not feeling it, I'm not thinking the argument's working, I'm going to take it a task on it. That's fine. We're going to take each other to task. Take me to task. Oakley Lean, he's not on right now. Oakley Lean, that's what he likes to be known as on Facebook. He takes me to task all the time. And he should because he's a hell of a strong debater. He's a, he's a tough guy. He's an intellectual guy. He gets at me. And that should be expected. But none of this stuff is ever personal. None of this stuff is ever personal, but I will take somebody to task if we're, if we're jabbing each other logically and I'm not feeling the logic, I'm going to take it to task. And it's because, look, this is something I'm, I'm pretty good at, all right? It's not like I go to Anthony Colancini on the basketball court all the time and tell him I'm going to beat his ass all the time because he beats me, you know. Hey, if it's ten times, he's probably going to win six or seven. So my point is, look, I acknowledge every good point, guys. I expect you to keep coming at me with good points. I expect all that. 
But those who know me know that this is a, a one of many, 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 many things I do in life every day. And I'm a positive contributor to society, volunteering, charitable causes, working a full-time job. I do this because I want to give you guys a platform, and I think it's the responsible thing to do to engage people every day. And make no mistake, I'm one of the better people at this kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm somebody who's achieved a lot of things in life. I've attained certain titles and I've attained certain achievements that give me the platform and I have the platform to reach out and to talk to people okay this is the logic and larry podcast the groups are the logic and larry groups it's my platform not because I'm a selfish jerk or because I'm arrogant about it but because I've attained certain statuses and I've obtained certain achievements through perseverance and finishing things I started that enable me to have this platform and I'm happy to have this platform okay but it's not ever about my personal notoriety or my personal ego or anything of that nature. That's not why I do this. And if I call somebody on an argument, guys, it's because of logic. And not because I'm beholden to something where I always have to be logical or I always have to be centrist. That's not why. It's because when I say centrism or logic, that's just because that's where objectivity leads me. Objectivity leads me there. Not because I have to contort every argument to wind up in the middle every time. That's not true. Sometimes I'm on the right of an issue. Sometimes I'm on the left of an issue. Wherever objectivity leads me is where I'll go. That's, I just want to say that out there because, you know, I've had different debates with a lot of different people lately. And at the end of the day, I just want everybody to understand that this is all love and this is all just about engaging in the process that we're going through, which is logical, objective debate. And me as a man and me as a person is somebody who's consistently putting people on, giving them props, giving them encouragement, giving them a platform to express themselves. And I do that because I'm a, I'd like to think I'm a pretty, pretty chill dude, pretty good dude who likes to give people platforms. And I truly value everybody's contribution and I value everybody's perspective and I value everybody's journey. I value it deeply. Okay, And if I call somebody out in an argument, it's not because I have any kind of personal thing or I need to fulfill any kind of my own issue. It's because we're just engaged in the, in the debate, just like I'd go hard as hell on the basketball court or on the golf course with you. Just like Jay Vreeland is relentless when he gets mad in the golf course, and I'm too close to Jay Vreeland, and I'm going to catch up. He makes sure he puts a freaking club to my throat figuratively and beats me because he's that kind of golfer. doesn't mean anything else outside of golf. So I just want to keep up the mission, guys. Let's keep up the mission. All of us do a great job with keeping up the mission, staying objective, okay? Staying objective with each other and keeping it where it matters. And we may have the most relentless, logical, policy-based debate, but we all know who we are as men, and we all know who we are as women, and we all know who we are as people. And let's keep that in mind. And let's keep that in mind as we go out and engage with other people that aren't in our little circle. As we grow our circle, let's continue to reach out and branch out our circle. And when we interact with other people, let's bring that same level to them. Okay? So next week, I want to try to get maybe Charles Riley on to talk about the left-right thing. I want Rick back on to talk about all kinds of issues. And, and I want to schedule Rick's part two very soon. I want Bobby Krills on, and I, I want all you guys to continue to call in and to continue to talk 
and continue to exchange ideas. It's a, it's a new day for all of us. It's a new era for all of us. I love every one of you. Every one of you is very important to me and very close to me. This is a great new day for all of us and for the country. And I had another great, great night with you all. I can't wait to have it. I can't wait till we're all sitting at a barbecue and Bucky's grilling up the ribs and Rick is chilling from Arizona and Allie's there with Paulo who got way too big and we're all just out there kicking it. Can't wait for it. Love every one of you. We'll talk to you next Friday night. Can't wait. It'll be another great show. Everybody dissect these ideas that Biden had. Dissect the news. Come ready next week to discuss these issues and we will talk very, 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 very soon. Good night, all. Muslim travel ban. Now, he also had an executive order that said do away with this zero tolerance policy at the border of separating children. That's a whole other topic. It wasn't necessarily going on as much anymore, but he did away with that officially, except in cases where there's actual suspicion of child trafficking, which is why it was in place in the first place. It was just exploited through a legal loophole by Trump, but that's another conversation.